This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Briefly, as we are uh, getting our guests on, I want to talk about what happened over the weekend or the news that came out over the weekend about one Randall Robinson. How many of you are familiar with Randall Robinson? Randall Robinson is a scholar who... I don't, when I was in college, this is somebody who just gave me so much hope. <laughs> this is somebody who like saw the world in a way that at the time I think was considered radical, but was just really for me empowering it was one of those things that made me realize okay the this european way i'm viewing the law and what i'm being taught is not <laughs> like this ain't it there is another way um to incorporate a life of activism and a life within the legal community and randall robinson was that for a lot of us he's the founder of trans africa uh, an author a phenomenal author an amazing activist and we learned this weekend um that randall robinson made his transition and the books that he wrote um really kicked off what's what's really crazy is that over the past few weeks Randall Robinson's name I've heard more frequently on this station uh, through a variety of the shows between my show Karen's show Clay's show talking about uh, and uh, Joe Madison's show talking about uh, just the magnificent contribution that Randall Robinson made to the conversation about reparations. And at 81 years old, for this elder who literally helped to lay out a, a, a written treatise on what America owes to blacks, it's actually the, the subtitle of his book, The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks. And he did so in a way that, for my young heart, was everything that I needed in that moment. And friend of the show, Nikichi Taifa, uh, who we've had on several times talking about uh, her expansive knowledge about the reparations movement, what is necessary, uh, why we should be fighting for it. She did a wonderful, uh, wonderful tribute to him. And Shayla, I'm going to drop this in the chat so that we can tweet that out. I want people to be able to see that. A really beautiful tribute. And talking about the fact that, you know, Randall Robinson, Dr. Randall Robinson was one of those voices who, as she says, straddled the black professional and the black grassroots communities. And I, I didn't have the words to put it that way, but I think, yes, uh, to our sister Nikichi Taifa, that is exactly correct. He was someone who was able to sit in a space that is often missed by people within the activism community and people within the, the professional book community. And it is a space that absolutely has to have a whole lot more of us sitting in that space absolutely has to have a whole lot more of us sitting in that space because rarely are things able to be solved fully with the grassroots or fully with black with the professional class in fact never with the professional class let me leave that alone point being point being um trans africa the organization that he created absolutely amazing in the work that it has contributed in the way that it has helped shape the way we think about the pan-african experience it's just been absolutely amazing in the way that it has helped us to have an international understanding of what it means to be a black person uh, he was one of the leaders he randall robinson of the free south africa movement 
He helped to push to end uh, apartheid and and did so in amazing and unique ways. And one of the things that uh, Nikichi Taifa uh, talks to us about is the fact that he wasn't just thinking about it from the political side. He was also thinking about it from the cultural side and that he was able to inspire uh, artists and celebrities, educate them about what was really happening in South Africa. And this was important because at the time, the South African apartheid government was giving up like $2 million a hit for artists to come and sing and perform in a space that was the the last bastion of no, 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 not the last bastion. Mm-mm. Let me not say that because we still got bastions right now. It was one of the key bastions of white nationalist effort in the continent of Africa. One of the key spaces where uh, the the white nationalist international effort was really coming to bear. And one of the things that a lot of governments of, of nations that are held in, in very oppressive states, what we see this even today, and in fact, we see it with some countries that I can't even mention because it could get my show pulled off the airwaves. So you know exactly who I'm talking about, right? But we see it even today where some nations that have a real oppressive grip on a segment of their population will often bring in celebrities to perform for them, to sing for them, and to give international cover to the evil that they are doing. And Randall Robinson was one of the people who did a lot of work to educate artists, to educate entertainers so that they would refuse to perform in South Africa, despite the fact that they were being offered $2 million to do so. And he did that through the work in a coalition that he helped to launch, which was called Artists and Athletes Against Apartheid. Wonderfully fit name. It was led by Arthur Ashe and Harry Belafonte. This is exactly the type of activism that I would love to see today. What if we had Artists and Athletes Against Racism? Or artists and athletes against uh, the return of white nationalist America. I mean, it would be amazing. It would be absolutely amazing. But the artists and athletes uh, against apartheid created a membership of performers who refused to go and refused to perform, to go to and perform in South Africa until this uh, apartheid was ended. There were over 500 artists and athletes who were members. That is an amazing feat. Particularly, this is before we had Google. This is before we had any of the things that we use now to try to get mass organization. This is an elder who spent time researching and writing and thinking critically about what it would mean to leave America. And he wrote a book that talked about quitting America. So those of us who are inspired by this effort and who are thinking a lot about how we get the hell out of here, (laughs) I suggest you read the book. He talked about his journeys to St. Kitts where his wife was a native. And and he, he did a lot of that in a way to, I think, open up the pathway and open up the possibilities for some of us to be able to, to think differently. To think outside the box, 866-801-8255, 866-801-TALK. I don't know if any of you knew Randall Robinson, studied his work, uh, learned from him, grew as a result of what he was teaching, grew as a result of the information he was putting out. But he certainly is somebody who helped me to really completely reorient my connection to this country in a way that I think is extraordinarily important. He was really instructive in the protests outside the South African embassy, uh, he did a lot of the work, uh, which was kind of embarrassing for some because it's right around the time that uh, Bez, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu was getting his Nobel Peace Prize. And according to Nikichi Taifa, he was joining those protests on the side of the grassroots. And as a result of that, because again, as she notes so beautifully, he sat in that space between the black professional class and between the black activism class because of his willingness to use his scholarship and to lend his name to these efforts. He was also able to make it mainstream. He was also to 
to make sure that we could not just sort of shove the effort to to end apartheid just to the side. It was not going to he was not going to allow it to be a fringe issue. So something that he brought to the mainstream. And so thankful are all of us that he did so. This is an elder who we owe a lot to. We owe a hell of a lot to Randall Robinson, particularly those of us who are very concerned about reparations. Whether you are like me, who thinks reparations are important and are worthy of fighting for, even though I don't think it's going to happen. And I got, I just, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think it's going to happen because we don't have the ability to not just get reparations, but to keep it. We saw what happened the last time black people got reparations. And yes, there was a brief period in our history when black people got a brief bit of reparations right after the end of the Civil War, when the general order that took the uh, land that had been confiscated from many of the Confederates and took their land and, and handed it over to the enslaved, formerly enslaved Africans. And they began plotting on the shore. We, we see that it was a beautiful few months. And then the next white man in power came and was like, yeah, no, we were sending that order. Y'all got to go. Y'all got to go. We, I know that the guy before me said y'all could have this land, you could farm this land, and that was part of your reparations package. I know that this was set up as a part of the Freedmen's Bureau and all yada, yada, yada. Yeah, but we're not doing that no more. And then there it went. So it's not just the getting of the reparations. It's can you keep it? <laughs> can you keep it in any meaningful way? And I just, I just don't think that that is possible in this day and age. I'm not saying we don't fight for it. I think we absolutely should. I think some of us should. But I personally believe that we would have a whole lot more um, – we get a whole lot farther if we realize that we're going to have to repair ourselves because they ain't going to do it. They just not. And not saying we don't fight. I think we have to have some of us that do. But the reality is Randall Robinson, for those who are interested in the topic of reparations from a historical perspective, from an analytical perspective, you need to be reading The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks. And as Nikichi Taifa reminds us, that book was published 14 years before Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, wrote about it uh, in his uh, The Case for Reparations in the Atlantic magazine, 20 years before George Floyd was murdered and he was the first person who made sure that the reparations issue was centered in white policy spaces this is a brother to whom we owe a lot and it saddens me that at 81 he made his transition but at the same time it's a beautiful thing that at 81 we are able to to have paragraphs and paragraphs and pages and pages written about this man this elder who did so much so much to help educate us about what is happening in our world, so much about what is happening when it comes to very key battles. And for those of us who are thinking about quitting America, you need to check out that other book, <laughs> Quitting America, because it, it helps. It helps to realize this is not the only place. This ain't the only piece of rock on this piece of rock. Let's put it that way. And it's important that we're aware of that um, so that we can do as much as we can to, to show up as powerfully as we can for ourselves. Uh, Brittany, I think we need to go ahead and go on into, I know we got a, a lot of commercials coming out. I know we got to get to a commercial break real quick. Uh, let's go ahead and to, do a quick, I see our guest is trying to get in. We're going to try to get him on so that we can continue this conversation. Uh, let's go ahead and let's go to a quick break. Well, folks, we're going to come back on the other side of it. We're going to be talking about the life of an amazing abolitionist, uh, someone who many, many decades before Randall Robinson was even a twinkling in his grandparents' eye uh, was someone who was also fighting for freedom and for black people to have access to the quality of life that we so richly deserve. Heading to a quick, quick break. We'll be right back. Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon. To bring that full circle, you don't study history simply for the sake of studying history. Folks, you study history 
so that you can understand the present and you are then able to plan your future. Inside the Issues, Saturdays, 11 a.m. East. Sirius XM. Urban View. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back. You are listening to Laree Daniel Favors on Sirius XM's Urban View, where talk empowers and becomes action. We've been talking a lot about some history today. And right now we're going to continue in that vein because there is a story that you all have got to know about that I'd be willing to suspect to, to I would be willing to believe suspect is the word I was going for. that if you went to the traditional American public schools, you probably wouldn't know much of anything about this person we are going to be talking about in just a moment. I am joined by an amazing historian, uh, one of the uh, most amazing historians of the abolitionist movement who is here with us today, Professor R.J.M. Blackett. He is a historian of the abolitionist movement whose books include The Captive's Quest for Freedom, Fugitive Slaves, The 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, and The Politics of Slavery, and Making Freedom, The Underground Railroad and the Politics of Slavery. He is the Andrew Jackson Professor of History Emeritus at Vanderbilt University. That is quite a title in light of what we know about Andrew Jackson. And and lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Professor, it is such a pleasure to have you with us this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you. You know, when I first heard about this latest book that was coming out about Samuel Ringgold Ward, I was absolutely horrified at the fact that, quite frankly, I had not heard of this particular ancestor. And so I would hope that you would, at least in the few minutes we have before we have to go to a commercial break, let us know who was this gentleman? Why should we know about him? And why do you think he has been hidden from history all of this time? Wow, that's that's the purpose of the book. Ward Ward was born enslaved in, on the eastern shore of Maryland uh, in 1817. His parents escaped with him when he was just under three years old mm. uh, to the, the southern shore of uh, New Jersey. And later on in 1826, after, an, after an, an attempt was made to recapture some of the settlers in that area, the family moved to New York City. Uh, where Ward attended uh, the African school, uh, which had some of the most impressive uh, alumni to come out of it. People like uh, James McEwen Smith, uh, Alexander Crummel, um, William Howard Day, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, an alumni, a group of alumnus that uh, would lead the struggle against uh, slavery and what Ward would later come to call Negro hate mm. um, in, the, in the 19th century. Uh, some of them 
remained very active well into the, the end of the, the 19th century. And Ward became a major figure in the struggle against slavery uh, in the antebellum period. He, um, he was a leading light in what was the Liberty Party, which was a party committed to the abolition of slavery, uh, which, didn't do very, which didn't do very well in the two presidential elections they contested in 40, 1840 and 1844. But Ward remained a dogged uh, advocate of the Liberty Party. He criticized blacks. He criticized blacks who voted for the Whig Party uh, as being part and parcel of. Uh, he he asked the question: How could anyone vote for a party in which there were slaveholders? Uh, basically, and the Whig Party, of course, did contain slaveholders. Uh, uh, and Ward remained committed to the, the Liberty Party until he fled to Canada in 1851, after he participated in the rescue of a fugitive slave in Syracuse that became very famous because uh, the citizens of, of, or part of the citizens of Syracuse um, simply liberated uh, the enslaved man and sent him off to Canada. And Ward, because he, he was himself a fugitive slave, theoretically, under the terms of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law. And because he had become increasingly disillusioned with the United States, he moved to Canada. Mm. Uh, and he became a spokesperson, the leading spokesperson for the Canadian Anti-Slavery Society. Wow. And, uh, and two years later, they sent him to England as their agent to raise money for the, for the society's work among uh, the increasing number of, uh, of enslaved people who had settled in, who had moved to Canada as a way to escape slavery and also to escape the enforcement of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law. Mm. Ward was very successful. Ward was very successful uh, in, his, in the years he stayed in England raising money. Uh, he rubbed shoulders with some of the most prominent people, aristocrats and others in, in, in England. Uh, and uh, in 1855, he decided uh, not to return to, to Canada. Uh, there were some other problems which we could discuss later. But instead, he moved to settle. He moved and settled in Jamaica. Mm. Uh, and, and it is there that we lose all contact with Ward. Professor Blackett, who is a phenomenal scholar and knower of many, many things when it comes to uh, the enslavement era, particularly the fugitive slave component of the enslavement era. And Professor Blackett, uh, I'm so grateful again for you being with us today. We've been talking a lot about the life of one phenomenal Samuel Ringgold Ward. And this is someone who, born in enslavement, had to escape really under the era that was controlled by the dictates of the fugitive slave law. Can you talk with us about what that law was and how it would have impacted folks like uh, our, our star of this particular book, Samuel Ringgold Ward? Uh, the, the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law is the second uh, national fugitive slave law. The first was in 1793. Wow. Um, Southern uh, slaveholding interests complained that the law lacked 
the sort of teeth that was necessary. And for decades, they, they tried unsuccessfully to strengthen the law. And finally, in the wake of the, the Mexican-American War, mm. which ended in 1848, uh, they saw the opportunity to increase, to, to include the law as part of the compromise of 1850. I don't need to get into the, that kind of complex history, but the law basically, what the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law did was to install a Southern system of controlling slaves that had been in place many years onto the national scene. Mm. And the system, the system was built along uh, the powers of a group of people who were called commissioners. They were sort of magistrates who had absolute authority to decide whether a, someone who was accused of being a fugitive slave uh, could be returned to, their, to the slave masters. Wow. Uh, the law included the persons so accused could not testify on their behalf. In fact, there was no opportunity for a person to testify in a hearing. Wow. The, hearings were not, the hearings were not cases as we have come to know it. Uh, they were arbitrary, um, preemptive, brief uh, hearings at which the commissioner made a decision that couldn't be appealed. Wow. So there's, there's a, you're a lawyer, so you would understand this. Yes. There's no, there's, there were no rights of, uh, legal rights to the, the accused. There was no, um, no trial by jury. Uh, there was no habeas corpus, which are the foundations of the mm. legal system, the Anglo-American legal system. Uh, so the law, made it possible for the commissioners who are sort of minor magistrates to make a decision to return or to free a fugitive slave. Most of the hearings that came under, that came before commissioners resulted in, in the, the accused being returned. Wow. But there were a number of instances in which mm. commissioners freed under pressure from local black, black communities freed those people who were accused of being fugitive slaves. Um, what, what did that so pressure is, look like, Professor? If, if there are so, local black communities that could agitate and organize on behalf of someone who had been accused of being a, a fugitive slave who would be returned, what type of pressure were we seeing black communities engage in that would be able to successfully release one of these folks back into their arms as opposed to being sent back into the plantation world? Yes, yes. Um, well, w w what, what I should point out is that the pressure from the community, which I would uh, get to in a minute, is coupled with support from uh, white lawyers who are mm. partial to anti-slavery. Mm. Uh, and lawyers who, who had no official role in hearings, but who nonetheless turned up and insisted on being heard. Huh. Um, and coupled with uh, the, the black communities, particularly in places like Philadelphia, New York, and uh, in areas where there was substantial, uh, a su substantial black population, uh, they turned up at these hearings. Wow. 
they packed they packed the hearing room mm. uh, supported by major white abolitionist figures particularly women mm. uh, who <laughs> they 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 put up barriers outside the courthouses they oh. threatened they threatened in the case of in one particular case in Harrisburg uh, under Pennsylvania state law these were called these were called uh, liberty laws under Pennsylvania's 1847 law at a time when there were no federal prisons. Pennsylvania's law said you couldn't house an accused fugitive mm. in a state prison. So it meant that when the commissioner in Philadelphia ruled in this case that the person had to be returned, and there were no trains at that point to take the person from Harrisburg back to Virginia, mm. the slaveholding agent had to find some place to house the, the, the accused fugitive slave, and they went to a local hotel, which the community set on fire. <gasps> so that gives, you, that gives you some idea of the kind of resistance that this met. The wow. fugitive slave law, the fugitive slave law simply divided the nation. Mm. Like not like no other political event of the period. Mm. There were thousands. There were thousands of um, of public meetings denouncing the law. And the other case I could mention is that of William and Ellen Craft, who had escaped from Georgia in in 1848. Many people don't know about the Crafts. Uh, she was she looked white, uh, and her husband. Uh, look black. Mm. Uh, it, they addressed her as a slaveholder, traveling wow. to Philadelphia, traveling to Philadelphia for medical reason. They dressed her as a man, mm. and they traveled by train and boat and coach, and within four days had traveled one thousand miles to freedom uh, in Philadelphia. Wow. Now the crafts then moved to Boston, and the week after. The fugitive slave law was passed. Their former owners sent two slave catchers to Boston to return them, and the community resisted. Professor, because, as I'm as I'm hearing this, it feels like one of the worst horror stories to be constantly in. It feels like something that Stephen King, none of the great horror writers of our era, would be able to even replicate. To be in such a state that you're disguised, you're traveling multiple modes of transportation, all while navigating a national law that says anyone who finds you out can return you. It feels like one of the worst scary movies to have ever existed and yet there were millions of us of our ancestors living under this regime samuel ringold ward just one of them and i i feel as though this is one of those areas of history that if we were not banning history and if we were not banning books like the books you are, are writing we would be absolutely shocked i think many of us to think about how pervasive this issue was and to realize when you said that it basically took the southern system of slave control and nationalized it it seems yes. to me that many of much of what we're dealing with today is following very similar patterns. It seems as though as many as much as things have changed they some folks are still operating from the same 
ancient American, and I'm putting that in air quotes, playbook, if you will. This this story with Samuel Ringgold Ward, how is it that he was the person that you settled on to focus with this book, Samuel Ringgold Ward, A Life of Struggle? What was it about his story that drew you to to want to feature him in this way? Uh, many, many years ago, I published a set uh a set of biographical essays, a volume of biographical essays on prominent or less well-known uh, African-Americans in, in the period. Uh, there were five of them. I had planned to include Ward in this biography and decided not to because I just couldn't pin him down. Mm. Uh, you see, Ward, Ward created a problem for me and for fellow historians is that he left the United States. And when you leave the United States permanently, if you, even if you are an American, you walk off the, the pages of history, of American mm. history. You are no longer part and parcel of that history, and you tend to be forgotten. And that mm. was one of the things, that was one of the things that Ward lamented when he got to Jamaica. All his friends and all his acquaintances and the people that he knew had sort of sort of cut him off. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know what he was doing. Uh, so I decided not to include Ward in the, bi in the biographical books. And in the, then the opportunity arose with Yale's uh, new uh, series on Black Lives uh, that I thought I should go back and look at Mr. Ward and see what, whether I could nail him down. And I don't know if I have nailed him down successfully but I have done a lot. I have filled in a lot of gaps in his life mm. uh, and tried to explain. Because you see, one of the ironies of Ward's life is that there's a major political uprising in Jamaica in October of 1865 known as the Moran Bay Rebellion. Yes. In which the, in which the, in which the, land, the landless and the peasants and the, rose up in an attempt to get more land. Mm. And Ward, who had become an iconic figure in the struggle against slavery and discrimination in the United States, sided with the governor of Jamaica. Wow. In, in, in the way he crushed the rebellion. Now, Ward, Ward believed that the rebellion, those who led the rebellion had been, their actions were misplaced. Huh. Uh, he was convinced that the peasants and the working people of Jamaica were indispensable to the success of the island's economy. And mm -hmm. therefore, they would be their work and their contributions would ultimately have to be recognized. And that the rebellion, he thought, was, was led by... And, and here, Ward's actions introduced a new element, was, was led by and influenced by a man called William Gordon, George William Gordon, who was a mulatto, the mm. son of a former slaveholder, a very mm. rich man, a very rich man in Jamaica, who had become a thorn in the side of the governor and who had been agitating for the governor's removal for years. And Ward, who had no history 
of having any antagonism to mulattoes in the United States sees this guy as the epitome, the, the epitome of all things bad about interracial people. Wow. So, it's, so it, be, it becomes a, a, an interesting twist in his life. Huh. I mean, uh, Ward's, Ward's favorite and most probably closest ally in the struggle in America uh, before he left was Frederick Douglass. That's right. I mean, they, they had their conflicts, they knocked heads at times, but there was the, those two together uh, were a driving force in the struggle against slavery and racial discrimination like no other. Mm. Uh, to get, together they had, because Ward, at least Douglas thought Ward was the best orator of his time. And if, wow. if Douglas, if Douglas thought that, right. you know, Ward must have been very good. Right. Uh, and I open a quote, the, the book with a quote, a lengthy quote from Douglas's reminiscence uh, from the 1890s when he talked about Ward and the loss to the struggle in America when Ward decided to go to Jamaica. Mm. Uh, so that Ward had no history of antagonisms to mulattoes. I mean, he, he could be harsh, a harsh critic on anybody who he thought was doing things the wrong way. Whether they were black, white, or, or, or interracial, it didn't matter to Ward. Huh. But when he, gets to, when he gets to Jamaica, this particular individual, who it seems had snubbed Ward when they met for the first time in London, mm. seemed to have gotten under Ward's skin in ways that I couldn't explain. Mm. There was nothing. There was nothing in his in his history that would lead to this. And Ward, Ward was a very proud black man. Mm. Uh, yeah. And he and he made it known. He even took little snide comments at at uh, Douglas. Uh, you know, at times reminding him that that his father was a white man. But it was usually done. It was it was it was it was usually done not not antagonistically, mm. uh, but uh, but they worked so closely together uh, that what Ward did in Jamaica was re really came to me as a surprise. And to oh. historians who have, historians who have looked at Ward, none of us none of us I think have effectively. Explain that change of heart, hmm. that change of attitude. This is one of the reasons why books like yours and scholars like yourself are so important for helping us to bring back some of the pieces of this puzzle, the mysteries that uh, lie within our history, history that many of us were not taught, that even to this day, some of us are not able to learn, at least in, in education spaces, because of what's happening with policies and politics around the nation. Uh, so this new biography, Samuel Ringold Ward, A Life of Struggle, uh, is definitely something that I think all of us should get our 
our hands on. And this is the type of information that we need, thinking not just in terms of the heroic things that our ancestors have done, but thinking about the complexities, the nuances and who they were and what they were grappling with and how they shifted and changed and their perspectives evolved as they grew. And or some might say as they regressed, we don't know. And, and so we will have to get yeah. our hands on the book uh, to get a copy of it. We are so grateful for you, sir, for being with us. Uh, this is a Yale University Press. Uh, it's a part of the Black Lives series. Uh, and this book is available, I believe, as of tomorrow. It is released, if not already. Yes. Is that correct? That is yes. wonderful. It comes out official. Okay, sir, we are so thankful for you, and I hope that we can get you to come back on these airwaves. You are a scholar uh, with a magnificent amount of knowledge and information, and I am of the opinion that right now we need to highlight voices like yours and make sure that we are connecting your voice to the people uh, in ways like we have never had to before because there is such an attack on us learning our history and thinking about how that history impacts how we make decisions today. Thank you so much for being with us, you all. He is Professor R.J.M. Blackett, and you can find his book, Samuel Ringgold Ward, A Life of Struggle, available tomorrow. This is the Yale University Press Black Live series. We are grateful for you, sir. Thank you so much for being with us today. 